0: Hi, I'm Eileen Mogus. I'm a coach, facilitator, and public speaker.
1: And I'm Daphne tsanko Sambala, former banker, entrepreneur, and mentor.
0: We're longtime friends and African women in the diaspora, talking to women like us about the things that matter to us. And this is Sofully Podcast. Well, today we've got a really great episode lined up, don't we, um, Daphne? Tell us a little bit about who we're talking to, what we're talking about, and what inspired you in the episode.
1: Yeah, so today we sat down with Mazi. She is a very inspiring woman. One thing that I love most about her is that she is who she is, whether you like it or not. She's going to keep being who she is. Mm-hmm. She is totally unapologetic and undoubtedly one of the poshest ladies I know, <laughs> I love her and I just I I walked away from the episode wanting more I want to be her friend I want to be her personal friend I want to have long conversations with her over her, her drink of choice and just discuss the way the world is and how she navigates it she is like me a creative she operates within the global but also the African creative space so She's got lots of opinions. She's got lots of great advice and insights about her experience as an author, as somebody who works with creatives, somebody who works within the luxury space as well. Just inspiring. And I think I um, I think everybody will take away something from her and her sort of hearing about her travels around the world, where she's ended up and the fact that she's just a natural global citizen, in my view.
0: Yeah, and such an inspiring voice. So um, like you said, unapologetically herself and completely and utterly determined to break through any uh, limitations that uh, other people put on her. She's just not limited by them. And I love that. But um, Yeah. yeah, let's get into it. Are so happy to welcome Mazie Odu onto today's show. Now, I've known Mazie since about 2003, I think, and I'm always in awe of her determination, her eloquence, and sheer passion for life. She is a published author of Heaven in Your Handbag and has written for numerous publications, from US and British VOGUEs to CNN Style. She's a writer, editor, cultural consultant, and founder of Magnus Oculus. Her work is focused on fashion, art, design and food and the way that cultural identity is informed and evolves through the usage and meaning we place in the items we wear, we use or we consume every day. Hello, Mazzy, and welcome to Soulfully.
2: Hello, Eileen. Thank Um, you so much for having me. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here. It's
0: such a pleasure. It's such a pleasure. Now, um, one of the things that... Daphne and I have, uh, you know, over the conversations that we've had, over the soulful conversations we've had, is this recognition of the breadth of career and life that so many women experience nowadays, which wasn't so common. You know, it's not nowadays, it's not one career, one town, one company for life. You know, you come in, you join, you retire, that's it. Um, and you are absolutely no different. And I'm really, really curious how you went from studying history and um, international relations and and political science. um, You did your BA and then your MSc. um, How do you go from there to all things fashion, design and writing?
2: Well, um, that's a really, really good question. I think that all of us, um, regardless of whether you say pivot into the creative sector, have portfolio careers I think actually the notion of a portfolio career is being a woman because you're also lots of people not all you'll probably be a mother you'll probably be working you'll probably be doing work with your family you'll probably be as well as your nine to five but in respect to myself I started off studying a you know degree that looks like it's going into an obvious trajectory in my case political science, international relations, probably going to work for the World Bank or work for, you know, an international aid agency. And that was very much in history. I always loved history at school. So it was my favourite subject. So pick a degree you're going to get a decent grade in was how I thought. I know nowadays a lot of younger (laughs) people are thinking, pick a degree that's going to definitely get you a job. So, you know, history might feel like a bit of a luxury, luxury subject to study now. Um, but in all of it, it's about communicating and distilling ideas. Um, so when you're studying the past, you're looking at it to sort of see a storyline and see how that now impacts where we are now. In the, ca- in the question of political science, we're looking at the structures, be they superstructures like, you know, continents or nation states or the micro, which can be as much as say, an individual or family and how they impact how people both operate and also the stories we tell ourselves. So, you know, our nations of nationhood, you're from Malawi, I'm from Uganda, there's a story behind what it means to be Malawian, to be Ugandan. Um, but straight after university, I had a series of jobs that were all had the theme of marketing and communications. So, I was always a communicator in some shape or form. And in fact, my first book that you mentioned. Came as a result of a fallow period, so other people might sort of be watching daytime telly. Um, I was sort of writing emails to my set of girlfriends, and it was back in the day, pre-social media, MSN Messenger. Shout out, shout out to the original (laughs) online communication tools, and we would be on MSN Messenger, (laughs) like lamenting about our respective experiences as, you know, on-point educated black girls in the diaspora. And I would always throw in, you know, some sort of distillation of this from a political science or whatever historical analysis. But then I'd always throw in a bit of Bible, a bit of Bible exegesis. And before I knew it, I actually had the frameworks for a book, which was how my first book was born um and published. And from there you would think, okay, then she would launch full on. Well, let's stop here. Let's stop here, not.
0: because I do want to I do want to know how you go from there but i I love what you said about um what you studies is you know basically about storytelling and so it's really interesting yeah. to listen to how as you reflect um y- your passion um is still. it it is being distilled so you're I mean I know you I know you are passionate about beautiful things and you and and passionate about words and how you frame that but it's a really interesting way to look at how you know what you've studied and how that has also informed it's just it's informed who you are and how you are uh, how you present yourself in the world um but also you're talking about that that Disgruntlement as being a, a you know a young black woman in the diaspora, a young African woman. You mm. were born in the UK, but you are of Ugandan descent. Yes. What was that experience like growing up, um, being being British, but also being Ugandan? Being you know how how did that inform your story?
2: Oh, that's a really interesting question. Um, I know that you know, there's lots of like sort of research now on whatever third culture children or transnational identities um, I've always when people ask me where are you from I've always said Uganda which sounds a bit weird because I technically was not born in Uganda I can claim made in Uganda um, but I also see where you're from as how you were <laughs> raised and I was raised by two Ugandan people and they were not Obviously, they spoke English. Obviously, they were professional people. Both my parents were professionals. Both of them were very highly educated. This is not some, you know, um, hard knock migrant story at all. Um, spoiler alert, you can probably tell from how I sound. Um, but um, they were very, they were very, very, very determinedly Ugandan. So we spoke our language. Um, I had an English name that I used at school. I was not called that in the family home, no one in my family called me by my English name, my English given name. Um, We ate Ugandan food. Um, My parents were very, very actively, um, because their migration story wasn't necessarily one where they thought they would stay in England for a very, very long time. It was this political situation made it such that we stayed in England for a very, very long time. And for me, I, as I said, I always identified as Ugandan. Um, It was interesting when I returned um would obviously go back and forth. But when I first returned after my undergraduate to live and work in Uganda and actually work a job in Uganda. So not this, you know, they call them Abasama, which literally means, you know, the rich kids that come in the summer holidays, you know, blah blah blah. <laughs> you know, sort of diplo brats, call them whatever you want to call them. Um so, but when I returned to work and I worked in normal my you know, it wasn't a It wasn't a foreign company operating in Uganda. It was a Ugandan company operating in Uganda. So all the staff are Ugandan. And this is where it really was helpful that my parents had been so hardcore in, you might be in London, but as far as we're concerned, this is Kampala. Because I was able to assimilate, connect Mm. with my colleagues. I was able to speak to them in the vernacular. Even if they teased me with my pronunciation or the fact that I didn't know slang, because obviously my parents were teaching me proper Uganda, rather than, you know, the street parlance. Um, it helped me and it informed me. And now, as I now live in another country entirely in Africa, um, I still take that Ugandanness with me. And it's so interesting because I think...
0: Okay, so this is a really, this is really interesting, um, Mazzy, because that's quite a, you know, you are, like you say, your heritage is Ugandan. You're growing up in the UK. You feel Ugandan sometimes I know that we can feel our you know our heritage but when we Mm. come back to that place we don't really belong did you Mm -hmm. feel when you came back to Uganda that you belonged there was it was did you have a culture shock was it just completely normal what what was that experience like
2: well I think this again this is where it becomes really interesting because my parents from a certain not just age era so they were they were the people who basically fought for independence. My father was much older than my mother. Um, so these are people who essentially grew up at the end of the colonial project. Um, a lot of my peers, their parents will probably be younger than my mom and dad. So their notions of what they might have taken on from the colonial project or not taken on will be different. Their notions of what they think is important to keep in might be different from the nations my own parents might have thought were important to keep in. Um, so there were definitely it was different iterations of Ugandanness, and I think this is something really invaluable for all of us to take on. Oh, there's no such thing as a homogenous nationhood. I mean, going back to what I studied, there's no such Englishness is many things, Nigerianness is many things, Ghanaian-ness is many things, um, Ugandanness is very many things. But what happens is the dominant storyline, the dominant script gets presented as this is what it is to be an English person or this is what it is to be a Ugandan person. So woe betide you if you do not completely fit this random dominant storyline that might be dominant for a number of reasons um, it causes a do I belong, am I part of this. I, I remember when I was growing up I say Uganda in England, and people would say Edy Armeen. I'd be like, no, that's not the only thing about Uganda. But I totally understand now, so I haven't studied history, why, boom, that would be the first thing. Or Last King of Scotland, you're like, no, 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 that's just one tiny aspect <laughs> of a country with 45 but million like people. it's like the
0: Ethiopian story, isn't it? Where everybody thinks, when you bring up Ethiopia, everyone mm. associates it with the famine in the 80s, and you're like, well... Even in the 80s, that wasn't the full story of Ethiopia. And it is not the full story now, but it's amazing how we stick to one particular narrative. And Uh especially if it's an unknown culture, you know, Mm -hmm. all black people are the same, that kind of thing. It's like, well, let alone all black people being the same or... All the different segments, like you said, Uganda. You know, there's no Ugandanness, there's no Malawianness, there's no Englishness. It's it's so diverse and beautiful oh. in that. And so, how do you find yourself now? Um, I love what you what you say. Is that you you know, you focused around fashion, art, design, and food as a way um, that is of cultural identity. What does that mean well, to you? What does that look like to you?
2: Um, So my area of sort of, you know, what I write about now, what I research, what I sort of propagate um, and why it's rooted in that is because the things, I mean, let's take clothing, for example, we make our most potent statement of who we are by what we wear, because before you've even opened your mouth, people take a look at you and from what you're wearing, they will make a whole host of assumptions. They might be wrong, might be right of the kind of person you are, your kind of interests, what your aspirations may or may not be. And then when someone goes to your home, for example, and sees what you're choosing to eat, what you're choosing to keep from your culture of origin, what you carry with you wherever you go, what you choose to wear or put on wherever you are in certain spaces and places as a marker of your identity, those are the most potent things. Before you've even told someone, oh you know, my name is XYZ and I live in Lusaka and this, that, the other. The fact that you're always wearing, you know, your cabochon cut emerald necklace that's from a Zambian mine, immediately you're kind of making a big point of it. You're already, you know, you're carrying your culture. You're not wearing something from the Place Vendôme in Paris, for instance. And that's obviously the super high-end version. But I do feel that if they, um, you know, Clothing, fashion. I was about design. to say, can we
0: can we bring it down to Camden Market and and? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry,
2: but even if you bring it down to, I mean, I'll even if you bring it down to, for example, I often wear. Although today I'm not wearing because I'm just wearing a long sleeved um, blouse. I often wear a um, cow horn cuff. So cow horn is something for jewelry that we use specifically quite a lot within Eastern and Central mm-hmm. Africa don't necessarily find it in West Africa. Mm. And when one sort of sees that, they're like, oh, you know, a lot of people who end up safe from here, where I am now, like, oh, well, what's that made of? And it's like, it's cow horn. We use a lot of cow horn jewellery in southern and eastern Africa. So that immediately, just from my jewellery choices, you already know there's something culturally different to me in spite of the location I now found myself in. It becomes a conversation starter far more than wandering around, you know, with a placard, I think. And it's a softer, it's a softer, I mean, people talk about soft power now, but, um, and we see that now within the African diaspora, people plugging into African fashion, people plugging into African music, you know, there's Michelin-starred restaurants in London serving food of African origin. So that soft power, I think, often does a lot Mm -hmm. more, to propagate and to, you know, to really celebrate, you know, the diversity in different cases than, say, wandering around with a placard or writing a 50,000-word essay, as I may have done about, you know, nation-statehood, discuss maybe 20, maybe there'll be a small niche of people that might be interested in that, but soft power is often what we wear and what we're interested in and what we choose to invest in and stuff, but yes... And Kiteng, it's an interesting one you mentioned, Daphne, because obviously everyone's claiming it. So Western Africans claim it, us in the East and South, we claim it. Um, some people say it actually came from the Dutch. It's it's a contentious topic. It did.
1: <laughs> it absolutely did. I'm a student of African cultural um Heritage and design, and yes, the, it it came the the way Kitenge ended up landing on our shores mm. from the Dutch is quite mm. an interesting story. Very interesting. But um, enough about that. Hey, I mean, at the end of the day, if if we can claim it, if if we are claiming it as ours, then let's yes. let's do that. How how it got here is another story. As it's long like... as we know the, that that uh, heritage.
0: Let's not even start about cultural appropriation and how we claim what for. Oh them my goodness! <laughs> That's a whole other conversation, but it is
1: Mazi Eileen. Can I jump in there because I think um, we are talking about these very complex uh, topics about cultural identity and all that. But I think for some, for some, some viewers and listeners, I'd love to know because you talked about obviously being born in the UK, and then you talked about going to work in Uganda, and you've touched on living in another part of Africa, which I know is West Africa. Just give us a little bit of a summary. You're born in the UK, you grew up there and then graduated and ended up working in how long did you live so, in Uganda and what took you to West so Africa?
2: Obviously like most a lot not the most, a lot of people you go in and out. So even when you're studying, you're still engaged with your home country if you're fortunate enough to be as I was. And then after my undergraduate degree, I went and lived in Uganda for a couple of years in between going to do my masters um, and then um, that's where I worked so I worked for an internet service provider so it was very early days of you know dot-com and some people sort of understanding about ISP so it was also a new market and communicating that and you know that being part of that digital revolution in the early noughts that was happening in Africa and obviously blew up exponentially and then I went back to England Um, in 2002 which is when I met Eileen to do my master's Um, and then I lived in England working in different comms roles mainly in the finance sector which is how I landed in a comms role in the finance sector in Lagos so when I first got this job it was quite interesting because this was 2008 and a lot of my even my West African friends were saying tread with care you're not from we're a very different cattle of fish in West Africa compared to Eastern <laughs> Africa. Uh, you might think you know us because you went to school with a few people from Nigeria or Ghana or Sierra Leone. I had, I had, I've always had a Pan-African crowd of friends as Eileen will attest. Um, I think as my parents themselves mm-hmm. were Pan-Africanists, they were part of that independence movement. So even growing up in our family home, there were people from all over Africa. So I didn't feel it was too much of a leap to go and work in another part of Africa, where at the time I had nothing connecting me there other than the job. Spoiler alert, I met my now husband (laughs) in that period. and um, I met my now husband in that period. So
0: now you have more connecting you <laughs> to Nigeria. I am
2: all in for Nigeria. I now have a child. So I'm definitely now very <laughs> much part and parcel. as they say in Nigeria. I'm part of it. So you can no longer, like I'm no longer an adjunct. I'm <laughs> in it. <laughs> so it's and so it's really interesting again about how one engages the level of um buy-in or the level of seed sowing however you want to describe it you have to a country so maybe had I gotten married to a Yorkshireman and moved to the Pennines I'd be very all-in more for England I do think sometimes where you then sow your roots then (laughs) it's okay I'm here now Um, I now contribute Um, to that space but obviously with all these different cultures sitting in the background because it's not like I'm going to ever try and pretend to be a Nigerian woman because I'm not but I will add that experience Mm. to the many ones I've been very fortunate to have.
0: This is an interesting thing because as you know as another one African woman to another you know you marry another African Mm. who's not from your culture Mm. It's a whole different ball game, right? So I'm married to someone from uh, from Ethiopian heritage, and you're married, Mazzy, to someone from uh, Nigerian heritage. And so, what you kind of think? Okay, well, I'm gonna it's gonna be easier because you know we're African, but like you said earlier, it, it's not the same story. No. Let in countries, let alone in different countries. Um, how have you found that for you? I mean, I know for me, not only you know I third culture kid living in different places my husband's same you know born in Ethiopia raised in Germany but you'd think our stories would have some crossover there's some things we can identify with with each other but our stories are so different Mm. I think that the common ground is we both know what it is to be multicultural but other than that our actual cultural experience is so different down to the food you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like food is completely different mm. the, the the clothes the, the the jewelry all of it is completely different mm. um so how has that been for you to add to your big pot of cultural wonder
2: well you know it's such an interesting question you say about how you know navigating you're both from africa and then you're not but you're not from the same country and then you get together i think um When, you know, when one thinks about these experiences from the diasporic lens, what will often bind you is you are black people in a majority white country, um, which is not my situation, because obviously we're, well, we're in the world's most populous black nation, which is what Nigeria is. (laughs) And um, so you're in a black majority country. Um, But I think going back to storytelling, in the same way, one wouldn't expect an Eastern European and Western European to have similar things i think there's all often again talking to what i was saying earlier about the dominant story that's told and you know there's all these amazing podcasts and social media tools that are you know dismantling that idea of homogeneity in blackness or homogeneity in africanness if you're now with somebody who's from another culture you would immediately see the different modus operandi whether it's from you know like you said the clothing the food the cultural customs um but then there are also some things that tie that I think I mean without getting myself into trouble or getting lots of people atting us in the comments box when this comes out I think there are a lot of things that tie I think I think (laughs) there are lots of black I mean I I think about Africa we are very family focused um we you know the family is important um community is important um Having love and respect for elders is important. You don't just chuck, I mean, again, not to shade Northern European cultures. This idea of old people being hidden away somewhere, it's not really the vibe for us. You know, old people are included in family events. You know, cross-generational gatherings are a norm rather than unusual. Um, They're not just for Christmas day, for instance. Um, So there are lots of things that tie. with some groups, I can speak for myself, faith can often tie one together. So if you're from the same faith group, that can be something that cuts across your cultural identities. And then I also think with curiosity, going back to stories, are you curious about other people? I'm innately a curious person. I'm innately an open person. Mm. Otherwise I wouldn't have been open enough to live in different places, um, try different careers, even in my day job now talking to different people and how they make things, how they design things. So I'm very, if you're coming with an approach of curiosity and respect, I think you can create a wonderful community um, beyond just your marriage partnership. You can make friends anywhere because you're not sort of sitting there going, oh, we make much better we do much better things with plantains in Eastern Africa than you guys do in Western Africa. Or, oh, you know, nyamachoma, <laughs> you'll see It's just nothing. You know, if you're always coming with that approach, <laughs> of course, you're not going to, A, you're not going to make any friends.
1: <laughs>
2: or, you know, so, and B, you're not going to see the beauty in
1: that new place. So, Mazi, are you, are you saying you've ditched the nyamachoma and no, the no, ogali? No, 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 no. I'm are you saying out. that please I'm don't say running that, that you done that. Tricky, man. we
2: have an ongoing discussion where i say east african and southern african meat trounces anything i've eaten in west africa i don't know whether they make these poor cows walk for 500 miles the meat's so sinuous it's not tender um, <laughs> no hard pass i mean if someone's got, <laughs> there's some things where i will very be very vociferous <laughs> But, you know, I, I'm, happy to, I'm happy to boil and steam plantains as I am to fry them, let's say that. So there's some things where I'm happy to see the beauty in each, each technique with the same vegetable <laughs> or fruit.
1: I can imagine um, what a rich experience your daughter must be having with one parent from East Africa and the other from West because you rarely see it. I mean, I've seen more people who, are, who come from Jamaican and West African um, parentage oh. than from West Africa and mm. other parts oh. of Africa, except maybe when you when it comes to South Africa, maybe. But even then, you know, it's it's it must be very interesting for your daughter having somebody who is very rooted in her East African culture as well as a West yeah, African. Yeah,
2: I think father. so. I mean, I, like I said, I didn't even think of it like that. I mean, maybe you know, it's that sort of. I think um, it was in the secret, the book, the secret. Um, where if you think about something, then you see lots of it. So I've met lots of people where it's a Nigerian and an East African or a Ghanaian and East African coupling. I don't know whether it's because I'm, you know, zoning in and then they're sort of popping up, like sprouting everywhere. And then with names and stuff, for my daughter, I mean, obviously I can't speak to her experience because I'm not her, but certainly with like her names, she loves telling people all of her names. and you know pronouncing them correct and correcting both respective sides on how to pronounce the Nigerian name correctly and likewise how to pronounce the Ugandan name correctly so I mean she's she's having fun with it and I think it's that whole thing I mean I imagine also with people who you know let's say if you're Polish and you're French um, you would probably have a lot of fun sort of little Jean-Pierre and his middle name is Marek and you know you're sort of bringing him up with Goulash one week and you know, cock of on the next, you know, I think that sort of thing of being open about your parents' differences, your (laughs) child then is innately a dividend, you know, winner.
0: I will say, I love that. I I, I do sometimes, I sit back when I watch my daughter and I see her, she's just engaging with the world from her lens, Mm. right? So whatever's Mm. normal um, for her. But I sometimes get a bit of a shock Mm. You know, I'm a bit like, oh, that's so unique to her. It's got no, it didn't come from me, Ooh. and I'm sure that you know, it's like that is something that uh-huh. she has, she has inherited from her father. Which I'm sure, in any case, in any any um, parent-child relationship, you experience uh-huh. that sort of shock of wait, that's not me, uh-huh. that's him, or vice uh-huh. versa. You know, but to see it within cultural things, you know, um, her absolute love I mean I love Ethiopian food absolutely love it but my daughter immediately the first time she tasted injera which I can't cook she loved it
2: yeah we have a phrase in Luganda which literally means um, which literally means it's in the blood but it also speaks to like the blood your heritage your lineage is having a conversation like you know generational back so they even say which literally means the food of your grandparents your food of your ancestors so She's eating injera because that's her ancestral food. Of course, she's going to tuck in. So it's innately in the it's DNA. In blood. It's
1: like it's, in it's the like blood. this is our drug.
2: <laughs> Fantastic. Why are you feeding me cornflakes? Pasta, be gone. This is the this is the real food.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah. Why? Why are you wasting my time, mummy? This is what we needed to be eating from from the moment I was on solids.
0: Also, with with things when you as as a, a Ugandan woman living in in the UK when you published your first mm. book um the writing came naturally to you but what was your experience of it being received how easily did you did you come into public was it published? how how did that work oh you?
2: right well we've been laughing but this is the you know the the, the dark days pre-George Floyd and social media um so <laughs> And how things are received as a a black um, creative. So it was really interesting. I had a fantastic publisher. Um, So it was a bit of a wild way of how I did it. It's not the conventional way. So the conventional ways, you're meant to send your manuscript, your three chapters, to a literary agent. The literary agent's meant to take you on. The literary agent then shops you to publishers. Then the publishers put an advance, and you go off and do your book. I had been trying, in fact, I am still trying, 20 years later now, um, from since I've met you, Eileen, to get a literary agent. Um, So before, in the olden days, like I said, pre-social media, there was this notion, and you can sort of see it in the sort of books that were published, that if you didn't come from some sort of urban, gritty background, then you weren't black. Um, and most of these commissioning editors are sort of white middle class. So they expect, hang on a minute, you didn't grow up in a estate. state. Um, your parents both, you know, are okay. You know, everyone speaks English well. You know, you're not the, sort of the, you're not the random one person you're fan.
0: You don't fit our yeah. narrative of what it means exactly. to be black. You're exactly. not black enough.
2: Which is very you're interesting because enough. as you can see, yeah. I'm quite dark brown. I was like, um, how, how much darker do I need to get?
0: <laughs> it's not,
2: to be fair, <laughs> you're not black enough. I'm, I'm the darkest shade in MAC. I'm NW55. I mean, they don't even make an nw What's going on? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, that's it. there was a lot of that and um yeah. I with my first book mm. uh, my a dear friend of mine we were sort of sitting um drinking gin and tonics as you do in Soho and he said you know who, who would you want to be published by and the publisher was Darton Longman and Todd and me being the sort of high achieving African girl that I was I was like I want to be published by DLT because they published the Pope the then Pope that was alive And they published the Archbishop of Canterbury. So obviously I'm writing a Christian book. That's where my book belongs. I mean, some people might think, oh my goodness, how grandiose. (laughs) I was like, aim high. Because then if you crash, at least (laughs) you are
0: Perfect. You've got to set your intention. Set your intention. I literally,
2: old school style, sent a chapter of this book, synopsis, brown envelope, went to the... I don't even know that post office is still around. there used to be a 24-hour post office in Soho. I plonked it in there, forgot about it, continued drinking with my friend. Um, and two, three weeks later, I was in some crappy temp job because you know this is again the reality of living and working in London. You take the jobs that you can get.' Was a crappy temp job, um, I think filing mm-hmm. or something really unglamorous. Yes. And um, I got a call on my phone and um, the person said, oh, hello, um, am I on to, you know, am I speaking to Mazzy? And I'm like, yes. And they said, we really love your book. And I thought it was my friend, like, just putting on a funny voice. And bear in mind, this was a Christian book. Oh. I actually said, blank off, fems." I know it's you, and press the red button. Um, <laughs> 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 the person calls back again and goes, um, hello, <laughs> hello. You're you're the author of the Christian book. Oh yes, yes, yes! (laughs) I was like literally. I was mortified. I thought, first of all, you know, I'm a bad Christian because I'm using colourful language. (laughs) They now they now know (laughs) exposed (laughs) already. (laughs) (laughs) Messed
0: myself. It is now. It's
2: all over. (laughs) Adam. Adam. And and, um, they they called me. I I luckily I didn't have. Obviously, because I was temping, they were like, Are you available next week? I sort of, you know, shuffled some papers around so I can sound busy. I said, Oh, yes, 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 I'm I'm available next week. And of course, the day, that end of that work day, I mean, again, very cheesy, typical African church girl. I was praising God, bunged on the Kirk car, was very excited. And when I met them, they said, We want to publish the book. And so they gave me an advance. So it was a very unconventional way of getting a, a book book deal but it was also in many ways given that I was getting so much pushback from the conventional route of the literary agents um, it worked because then the book came out now in terms of how the book was received it's really interesting again because um, Mm -hmm. the church I was attending at the time didn't want to haste my book launch um, for various reasons and so then I sort of was church venue searching <laughs> and I came across this really lovely church um, on Westbourne Grove, Westbourne Grove Church in Notting Hill and the then vicar at the time, his wife was an architect so to save their own church they'd kind of carved out the turrets to make them into lofts and then the bottom bit it was shops and then there was still a beautiful sort of open plan loft space that was worship space but given that my book was called Heaven in Your Handbag and it was, the conceit was being, you know, loving your fashion, loving your, you know, nice things, you know, sort of Carrie Bradshaw meets St. Thomas Aquinas and chuck it in a blender. It The the space was always like godly design. I was like, oh my goodness, there's there's, a, there's an fontaine blouse shop right there. If, if I have a wardrobe malfunction, <laughs> <laughs> I can just slip out and continue signing books. <laughs> so it turns out the venue, it was, you know, it was great. And then In terms of reception, it was really interesting because obviously I did the Christian church rounds, but because the book had a bit of a crossover vibe, I ended up, you know, on things like the BBC. So this was uncharted territory. My grandfather was a priest, but I certainly wouldn't have called myself an evangelist. And there I was now being this sort of spokesperson for whatever, you know, the journalist might want to say, is this the contemporary voice of... Christianity I'm like no 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 no. I just go to church <laughs> I'm not the contemporary voice of anything but going back
0: I go to church and I love fashion uh, and yeah, I'm a good writer yeah, but that's look at look at that. About.
2: I don't want to be sort of like sound bite person but in terms of reception it's really really interesting because subsequently when I've now written for secular publications those I mean my my first book was in my maiden name so those who have sort of maybe done a bit of a Google have expected me to be a certain sort of person because I have a faith that's out there Um, and then likewise people might think oh you're going to be xyz sort of person and then also you still have to this day I would still say it which might be contentious I still think there is a bit of a homogeneity in terms of the type of black person that is the expected and accepted voice in the global north Um, luckily I now live in the Global South so I don't have to contend with it as much but certainly when I did live in the Global North it used to really irritate me because there's 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 a multiplicity. We don't do this with any other group. We don't expect people of Indian heritage to be one sort of person or South Asian heritage, Pakistani, Sri Lankan. Why are we still in this soup when it comes to
1: blackness? Um, I think... Part of it is to do with the supply of different types of, it's like, it's almost like a balance between the two Mm. supply and demand. So um, if publishers and the gatekeepers are only allowing a certain Mm. type of content Mm. or product out there, and that's all that the consumers and the audience get, then it kind of feeds back that that is the only thing that should go through. And so, when somebody else comes in, or a product or a service comes out that goes against that, if the gatekeepers don't let it through, people don't even know it exists. Mm-hmm. It's the the whole Wakanda. It's the whole Wakanda. Mm-hmm. The whole um, Issa Rae thing of saying black won't sell. B- a black yes. superhero, they won't sell. But when mm-hmm. you bring it out there, that's when you realize that, I realize actually that there is an audience. The audience will take those things out but it's frustrating when as you try to do it it's really really frustrating i
0: love that you did do it anyway because i think that's really the encouraging message of saying look nobody is going to want nobody's going to let me do it the conventional way so i am going to which takes a whole lot of um resilience um self-belief which i think again comes back to and Daphne and I have talked about this when you are raised um, when you were raised by African mm. parents who either you yourself have been raised in Africa like Daphne and I where we have seen black mm. excellence and black leadership and black power mm. and black um, brilliance our entire lives so we don't question mm. it mm-hmm. right we don't question it or you know um, versus children who might who are raised here who don't get to see it and then actually their belief on how far they can mm. go is is questioned because, you know, I've never seen anybody in that position. I've never seen anybody break mm. through that ceiling. Whereas for, you, for if you, with your experience, although raised here, you had these excellent parents. Yeah, who... and
2: excellent. They had excellent friends. I, you know, this is a game that talks about the silos. You know, I, everyone... Yes. Every black person I knew was a professional. Um, every black person I knew was working. Every black person I knew was doing well in their respective field and different fields. So I remember even just going to university, the Africa Caribbean Society, and you know, it was a uh, it was interesting, you know, because I then also, you know, to use the phrase check my privilege because I was like, whoa, I, I, this, not that I, obviously I I grew up in London, so I I did see deprivation, but this notion of you're the first person in your family to go to university, I certainly was not the first person in my family to go to university. So I was meeting some people where that was their reality. And so if I then say, suggest, oh, let's go, and I don't know, I'm just trying to throw some go in a space that they might feel because of their lived experience, black people can't be there, I would be quite incredulous. Like, why on earth can't we just mm-hmm. go and see the opera or go and do something else, go to the saddle as well, mm-hmm. and they'll be all antsy and jumpy about it. And obviously now, you know, one can see that if you haven't, been, if you haven't, been, if you haven't seen it, you might not necessarily believe it. But speaking to your point, Eileen, about, um, about gatekeepers... Mm-hmm. I continue to do it now. So it's not even just, you know, with Magnus Oculus, I founded that blog because no one was writing long form articles um, about people I thought people should be writing long form articles about. So when I was pitching these stories and they weren't getting traction, I just went direct to the designers and said, Do you fancy having a conversation with me? And I'll write about you. So it's really interesting because obviously now, you know, we've got a fantastic, um, there's been lots of, um, exhibitions and shows celebrating Blackness. I mean, one could even argue, you know, the movie franchise Black Panther opened up people this notion of an African utopia um, and to, you know, an, a, you, you know African excellence. Yeah. That's sort of the pop culture level. Um, and then when we go to sort of higher culture in inverted commerce, mm-hmm. you know, we've had shows at the v There's currently a show at the Brooklyn Museum um, on... African fashion, we've had the Brilliant in Black jewellery exhibition at Sotheby's. We've had, you know, artists from Western Africa winning Grammys like Burner Boy and Wizkid and selling out stadium in Europe. So everyone's like, yeah, yeah, Africa's so hot right now. What's the big deal? But just seven, eight years ago, um, and you're trying to write about these very same people that everyone's now screaming and going crazy for and buying their product. Um, and you're trying to engage and when I talk about northern I mean northern um, media for me at the time was mainly British media because that's where I that's where I had connect and you're saying hey you guys got a big diaspora in community how about an article about this um, designer or how about an article about this creative and you would get a hard no and because of my marketing communications background I'd always give supporting reasons Of why i think that person would be an interesting fit for that publication because also i think a lot of times when people say oh everything's so racist it's did you get all your ducks in a row did you um actually create a compelling reason for why that publication would engage with that particular story and i always would do this i get all this pushback um along comes george floyd and obviously things change now everyone writes these weird articles of 50 black brands you should buy right now or whatever but then, before George Floyd, I founded Magnus Oculus, which literally means big eye, and technically it should be Oculus Magnus. But I'm not, I am a Latin scholar, so I know that technically it should be that. But I just did it the other way around. Um, <laughs> and big eye also play on a Nigerian <laughs> phrase, um, a Nigerian phrase of um, which is called Ojukokoro, and Ojukokoro in Yoruba um, literally means someone who has a liking for nice things. Be a say no more, I have a liking for nice things. I'm self-confessed rare. <laughs> and so I thought, why don't I write this platform? Why don't I just write, you know, old school blog? But unlike an old school blog, these will be deep dive long form articles with these designers, with these artists, with these creatives about their work. And a lot of the designers, again, a bit like once you cut the middleman of the commissioning editor of the fancy publication and just go straight to the designer, They're so open and happy for someone who is interested in their work to write about their work. And again, not to toot my horn, so far we have, of the three, I mean, there are three um, African descent um, designers who I first featured in Magnus Oculus that have subsequently been LVMH prize finalists. And it's so funny when LVMH are quoting my my little blog um and then likewise a CFDA finalist who was first I first wrote about um writing about three artists who currently ended up being in that brilliant and black jewellery exhibition they were first written about on my publication in long format and it's not to toot my horn because obviously now everyone's now writing about them which is fantastic and their sales are growing which is fantastic because again I want people to do well but it's Mm. interesting that for me, and I find this again going back to storytelling, it took a really dark story, which was that summer of race reckoning, for people mm-hmm. to notice the light—a light that, not just myself, there's so many other um, writers, there's so many other editors, there's so many fashion stylists who would try and, you know, put a, you know, dress by fashion design an African fashion designer or an African jewelry artist on a celebrity, and I was like mm, no one's really interested in it but now we have, you know, it's everywhere, um, but it's terrible that it took something. I
0: dark. mean, it's just saying that it's so, yeah, that it, it, it's so, we know this to be true. And thank you for putting it so eloquently, but it's so deeply upsetting to me um, that that's what it takes. And I, you know, it's not, it's no surprise. We know this, um, but in hearing that for you, and I know that because Daphne, you've with your pushing African fashion and trying to also create a platform that's when you're watching your work go unseen for so long and the work of other artists go unseen for so long. Because it is the thing, isn't it, where African women, black women are the most underfunded and under resourced business. You know, they get the least, but they are um, creating business faster than any other population in the world. What does that, on a personal level, what does that experience say to you? And how do you how do you how do you care for yourself with that to honour yourself?
1: To add on that question, let me pile on a little bit more onto this plate, Mazi. Um, yes, I have seen it. I've been I've been within the creative economy for over 10 years now, and I came into this space because I was frustrated. I was frustrated as somebody who loved, and I was only working within the fashion space at that point, but now I'm sort of my spectrum, my my work is broader. It's African design, it's decor, accessories, textiles, and apparel. But at the time, the thing that frustrated me the most was to see the only... African fashion that was given any level of seriousness, any platform, any light, was that which was presented by what I call expats. So we had um, Burberry, we had H&M, a lot of high street and high-end retail brands yeah, bringing African fashion with no reference to Africa. The products were definitely not being made in Africa And they were being pushed in in front of audiences and people were lining up. I think when H&M launched a special collection in 2012, people literally slept outside the the store so that they could get their hands on this because it was in collaboration with Stella McCartney. And it was that frustration to say, can we have black people's African fashion as well? Can we have authentically African fashion being given this same platform? So I, I just wanted to agree with what, you know, I want to agree with what Eileen's saying, but I know that it, for me, the frustration was channeled into my decision yeah. to go into the space and create a platform. But over to you, Mazi to just tell us how you felt um, and how you dealt with, how you've been doing it. Well, this?
2: for a start, I, I, I mean, as a quick rejoinder, I don't just write about African creatives. And again, that speaks to my own lived experience. I haven't just lived in Africa. So if you go on my blog, there mm-hmm. creatives from other parts, China, mm-hmm. you yeah, know, Feng Jie is someone who I absolutely love her work, Mbiri um, um, Kos, who is um, from um, Switzerland originally, um, but she also has some South American heritage. Um, so I, but speaking directly to the Africa story, and I don't want to just focus on fashion, I think there's three things going on. Um, first of all, There is what people have decided within the system, so the fashion ecosystem is viable. So there's a lot of narratives of oh, you can't produce, you know, things of a a consistent high standard on the African continent. Sizing is different. There are lots of reasons people put out there, and I'm not I'm not um, poo pooing their reasons of why they don't produce cultural appropriation has been going on since the dawn of time it's not new um and it's been continually going on there's some some groups are more successful at pushing back um and you know getting vociferous where they get vociferous online and say oh you can't put a traditional native american headdress on a girl in a bikini because that's actually a priestly garment and then people have now chilled out with doing that but Historically, people would just do a potpourri, oh, we quite fancy that, that looks dramatic. We'll just bung it it on a girl in a bikini, which is the equivalent of, I don't know, putting the Pope's habit on a girl in a string bikini. Some people would be very upset about that imagery. So once people understood. And I think what also happens is we, as the Africans, and I always throw this to Africans, we're also consumers. So if you're buying a Burberry Ankara trench coat, um, or Burberry, but you won't buy an amazing, for example, the Nigerian designer here, Tiffany Amber. She she did the Ankara trench coat two, se- mm-hmm. four seasons before the one appeared in Burberry. Go figure. So why are you buying the Tiffany Amber one? Um, mm-hmm. Why is it that it's only when it's mm-hmm. now on Bond Street when you've gotten your visa? And you're feeling cool with yourself and you've sipped your tea in your Park Lane hotel and you now, you know, it's all part of this. I've arrived. But the same luxury garment is available a drive away from your family compound. That also speaks to a colonized mindset. You know, why is it that I know people who weren't wearing African luxury, but since these exhibitions are all of a sudden into it? They weren't wearing African jewelry, but since brilliant and black, then I like, oh my goodness, like, oh, I love, I love, I love. And you're like, hang on a minute, just two years ago, you didn't want a bar of this. So there's mm-hmm. also a bit of, uh, you know, people talk about decolonizing the educational system, but right? decolonize your own mindset. Why are you waiting for external validation to value what is your own? Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Why are you waiting? for, yeah. And speaking to what you were saying, Ida, yeah. of me not waiting, I could sit there even till now, I go, oh, I still don't have an agent. I still don't have an agent, but I've been published in Condé and i have been published in Hearst. I'm not waiting for the agent. You know, maybe the agent will be ready for a black person like me when my daughter is grown. It's not my problem. I'm not going to sit there and be stimmied mm. and stifled and oppressed by someone else's super tiny world view and their myopic imagination and then now slot myself into their tiny box. I feel that instead... We should just, and we say about self-care, that's my act of self-care. My act of self-care is an act of defiance, of I refuse to be diminished. You can try, you can try and ignore me, you can write your polite email, I will continue. I'll just post it on my blog. It's okay. So I understand not everyone has that resilient mindset and I do Mm. honour both my upbringing and my faith and just my general, you know, zero f's personality when it comes to things that I'm passionate about I won't sort of allow that to stop me participating even now within the african fashion landscape there are gatekeepers we have black gatekeepers spoiler alert it's not always the white people you you know we have yes. regional gatekeepers oh, there are some yes. people who think things from east and south Africa are rubbish <laughs> you know i have you have xenophobia within the continent you have xenophobia within the diasporic communities let's if we're going to really do full disclosure on this, it's not always the white people are the bad guys, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so if we're going, and we need, yeah. and I think it's a bit like if you're sweeping your family compound, you can't just sweep the bits at the front that people, the guests see as they're coming in. You've got to sweep at the back where you're preparing the food, you know? Just if the parlor looking lovely and acceptable, but the back kitchen is a hot mess. That's, that's not the way for real change.
0: Amen to yes and amen <laughs> to all that you have said that's what i can say because i think it is so easy to point to the external without any self reflection mm. without any self challenge without demanding of mm. ourselves to be mm. better and you know we want you know we want we want to be seen we want to be heard we want to be represented but we're not asking ourselves are we willing to do that for ourselves are we willing to examine why we are not supporting those like us just because of a cultural, you know, mm. country of origin difference or whatever mm. it is, or educational difference. Which I think that's another thing when you talked about checking out your privilege. Are we checking mm. our privilege mm. as well? You know, there's a lot of talk about white privilege, which yes is one thing, but amongst us as people of color, women of color, and women of the African diaspora, are we checking mm. our privilege? I think that's, I, you know, you, so many things, Mazzy, you have said. Um again, it's this is this very hard thing for Daphne and I as we come to an end of a podcast and we're like, We're not finished. Okay. We we're can not done. continue. <laughs> we're not done. There's so much that more to talk is. about. <laughs> Masi, I think you and I are gonna have to we you and I are gonna
1: have to have a side <laughs> conversation yeah. and compare notes on, on these gate because I yeah. thought I was the only one who, who kind of get got, got frustrated with this. But I do wanna say, I mean, I've I've known that you're a friend of Eileen's for a very long time. I didn't know what you did, but this has been a very, very inspiring and invigorating um, conversation with you, Mazi. You are undoubtedly one of the, the most glamorous people I know. And next time you go shopping, please take me with you. I'm signing up to Magnus Oculus. I mean, how many people do I know who, who can drop Latin and certain cut of tanzanite Ka- or was it Cut Ka- <laughs> emeralds, I they're, I
2: they're, they're it. a vibe, Zambia, so great much. Zambia, Zambia for here the win, know. I'm you a little <laughs> shout out, I'm not even on, I'm not with the mining board, I'm not with the Minister of Mines' best friend, <laughs> quickly before Eileen's like hang on a minute what's going on here <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's just, it was just saying about the richness of what we already have on the continent. So, when you know, I write a lot about jewellery, and the majority mm-hmm. of the gemstones come mm-hmm. from the African continent. I mean, and, and yet we wait to have them marketed mm-hmm. and sold to ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. there are people who are amazing stonecutters here. Mm-hmm. There are people who are amazing mm-hmm. facetists here. So what is it about always needing the external when actually the external people are rocking up here And you know, buying up a storm, buying the rough stones, taking them off somewhere else. So it's again, even us, even us, the three of us, we are we are lovely exports that have been taken elsewhere. I'm sure there, you know, some people will be like thinking about the brain drain of Africa and thinking, oh, if we could get all our diaspora to even commit to coming for three years of their working life, and then they can go back elsewhere. I mean, there are lots of people. You know, I have friends of mine who are talking about that in terms of the development dividend um if we could just get people just to commit to five years what would it what would it look like for the continent even if they go back to yes. steady electricity and power and all the things that the creature comforts that often make people frustrated of relocating but yeah it's another topic another topic
0: <laughs> that's quite a call mazzy and i, I and I, I appreciate i appreciate you saying that i think it is you know i, I think a lot of people in the diaspora do have the pull. Mm and it is it's it is a hard oh. decision right it's a hard oh. decision as to when and how but you know like i said in the very beginning you i am in awe of you in in your determination i remember your your struggle at getting your book published i remember that clearly i remember the conversations around that time as well and 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 your absolute um determination I, you know the stamina the the resilience that you have you're obviously a pan-Africanist through and through you're obviously um, <laughs> living a, resistor, it. A, a, a revolutionary and uh, it's so inspiring on a personal note to hear how you will not you know you will not succumb to the external you are going to live your passion you are going to do the thing you are going to charter a course for others to come behind you Thank you for that. Thank you for your eloquence. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for just all that is beautiful that you have brought. We appreciate you very deeply and appreciate you coming on to our first ever season. And when we come back in other seasons, we hope you will join us again. But until then, I would love to know how people can find you and support you. Oh,
2: thank you so much, Eileen. And the joys of waterproof mascara, because we might have a panda situation. Thank you for that soliloquy. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you too, Daphne. Um, So if you love um, reading about jewellery design, um, I have magnus.oculus. It's the Instagram handle, where we have little reduxes for those the shorter attention span and if you like going deep we have a blog which is magnusoculus.com where i pop up there my main handle um sort of has a combination of both things i've written for other publications which is mazi odu so you can have a look at that ma double and that's i think it
0: we'll put it you know, in
2: Thank you. And I would love to join again. And um, thank you so much. It's been, it hasn't felt like work at all. It's felt really, really, like you said, like a chilled conversation with friends. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Wonderful.
1: Thank, thank you, so. you, Mercy, for being so unapologetically I oh. Love that. Thank it's been you lovely so much, Daphne.
0: You.
1: Special thanks to Ayosi Apollodyne for our artwork and Crack the Window for our theme music. This episode was edited by Marcus Root. Our website is sofullypodcast.com. Check it out for show notes and links. Please subscribe to our podcast on most podcast platforms and watch us on YouTube. Thank you for listening. And until next time, we're Soulfully Yours.